Welcome to Season 8 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who understand the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode is brought to you by Grant Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks so much for watching. Enjoy the show. So welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I am joined by the fabulous Karen Faith, who is CEO and founder of Others Unlimited, a company that offers empathy training. She's also an ethnographer and strategist specializing in actionable wisdom, and I promise I'll ask about that, with two decades of experience in ethnographic discovery to inform branding, marketing, and product design, her work utilizes tools from multiple disciplines to empower teams to define, understand, and solve problems from the granular to the grandiose. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you. We were having a little pre-chit chat and it got so delicious that I said, let's stop and let's get this on tape because it's so interesting what you're saying. Yeah. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, I'd like to ask about something that um, that you wrote in, in some notes to me that you believe empathy is a practice and not a feeling. And it's also available to everyone, not just that what you call tender hearted. So what do you mean by all that? Tell us what you mean. Yeah, I think, well, most of us were taught to practice empathy um, using the golden rule, right? To just consider another person's experience. And we're often, the word is so much used almost synonymously with compassion. Um, and of course, ca- compassion is a welcome byproduct. But I think that the practice of empathy, the biggest difference with compassion is that um, empathy practice doesn't require someone to be in pain. You can have empathy um, and practice empathy with someone in order to understand uh, what makes them feel powerful? What makes them feel strong? What makes them, what are, what are they, what's bringing them joy that as an ethnographer, that kind of research um, at the core of that research is understanding another person's experience, the totality of that experience, whether or not they're suffering. And so I kind of wanted to separate empathy from compassion, just for the sake of definition, of course, you know, people say that I feel I, I can empathize or I, I feel empathy and that's, that's effective empathy and that's there that there's a place for it but i like to talk about cognitive empathy in terms of the skill set in order to help folks know that you don't have to be you don't have to be really touchy feely to practice this you know that this is a, a cognitive practice of expanding one's perspective that's available to anybody it's all you need is curiosity really so what do you think about, so let's backtrack because I, I mean, I don't know enough about ethnography. So like you studied ethnography, you are an ethnographer. What does that mean? And how does that inform your, um, your work so that you can actually teach people to expand their field of perspective? Ethnography is an immersive style of qualitative research. It is, it is the closest to taking a walk in your shoes kind of research. Um, sometimes uh, you might actually do something like that literally, where, you know, if I want to know what it's like to sit at your de- desk, I'm going to sit at your desk, not just ask you what it's like, you know. And so ethnography is this style of research involves, you know, usually I will be with people in their homes. I'll be with people at work. I'll commute with them. I'll eat dinner with them. I have gone on dates with people. I have um, not, not me dating, observing the date. And, and there's and there, this is it's it's about me having that experience as, as, as authentically as I can to get as close as I can to understanding what that person is experiencing. So the skills of ethnography involve 
non-judgmental reception and something that that I actually call in my practice unconditional welcome, where um, I have got to be able to receive absolutely anyone in any state, in any condition that they are um, with curiosity and with openness and with this kind of um, willingness to receive whatever it is they have to share with me. And um, that practice, when I started to train young ethnographers, um, that training them to do that was such a fascinating and amazing journey. And it involved, you know, how do I listen deeply? How do I observe? How do I look at the places in myself that are not that are judgmental and address those things? And that that kind of curriculum is what ended up becoming the empathy training curriculum that I've been developing now, that I'm teaching now. Um, but it started as, you know, learning to train young researchers. Oh, that is so cool to know that. And I'm wondering, as you became better at your practice, mm-hmm. how did it change your personal relationships? Because I imagine it did. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a harder question because personal relationships are are not research relationships. And and I think that, you know, when I was when I was working full time as a researcher, you know, the question that I got most often from my friends are like, are you researching us right now? And I'm like, no, a little, but no. <laughs> you know? And and it's and it's kind of a, you know, I'll tell you in my personal life, my default is not to listen. I am a talker. I love to talk. I love to talk all the time. And I have to, you know, I used to say that I like to learn things from people to whom those things did not come naturally. You know, I don't want to learn from someone who's a natural at something because they don't know where all the trap doors are. You know, I want to learn from someone who's failed a lot and who's had to practice that. And I feel that way as a person who teaches listening. I feel like I'm a great teacher of listening because my natural state is to do the talking. So I I have I have some knowledge around the effort that it takes to pay attention and like really zoom in to someone. So this is um this is something that I that I struggle with in my personal relationships because um while I I feel like I'm a compassionate person and I feel like I can practice empathy, um I think that it is I don't think it's anyone's default. We're always defaulting to our own point of view. And um, and it actually sometimes makes me feel a little, um, yeah, I get a little imposter syndrome me when I'm doing a bad job in my personal relationships. And I think, oh my God, who am I to be telling people how to do this when it's so, so hard? Um, but I also think that it has helped me in in difficult moments of conflict. I have been able to, lean on the skill of unconditional welcome and and do my best to try to to stop my reactivity and and think about what is this other person experiencing you know and and what are the message messages that they're hearing from me that I may not be intending to say you know and and so yeah it does help I mean it's a skill set that I still have to use intentionally though. I love that answer. It was very, um, that was a very thoughtful answer. And now I want to ask you about, like, to take it from the theory to the practical, I'm sure that we are get into sort of where all the applications of this work um, uh, is useful. But let me just start with sort of like, let's say you're sitting on a plane next to somebody, you're sitting next to, you're at a dinner party, and you're, you know, sitting next to somebody that you didn't bring, um, or whatever, and you're having a conversation, you want to have this welcome, what did you call it? Unconditional welcome. Unconditional welcome. You want to learn to, to be, to hold that space where somebody can be who they are, and then you just accept them as they are. So what are some of the little early 
tools to doing that? Um, I will tell you the very first one is to imagine it. And this is, um, this was a part of the talk that I gave this week too, is that I, I actually had this experience with a research subject who, um, you know, my unprofessional self did not like. I did not want to connect with her. I was not enjoying her. It was not fun. And I realized I'm not going to be able to learn about this woman unless I receive her. I've got to receive her. And I, and I visualized this. Um, and it came from a meditation that I had done some years before. And it just kind of came to me in the moment. I kind of visualized this. The way it appears to me is like a shiny soap bubble <laughs> um, filled with this welcome, right? And with my breath, I inflate it. And I let this, this be the space where everything in that space is totally welcome. And I let this space get big enough to contain my entire body and then her entire body. And then now we are in here together and everything in here is okay. Everything here is welcome. It's not tolerance. This is really important. It's not tolerance. It's not like this is against my will, but I'll allow it. No, it's like everything here is welcome. Everything here is welcome. And I, and I actually visualize this first. And um, after that, it all kind of unfolds by itself because they feel it. The other person feels it. The other person knows it. And you don't have to have, you know, certain words to say or certain questions to ask because then it just, it's, um, it's there. The space is created. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, yeah, people connect with one another. And it's such a gift for other people to feel like they are in a situation of unconditional welcome, right? Where you don't feel judged. Cause isn't it such a shitty feeling to feel yeah. like somebody is like judging you or scrutinizing what you say, you're walking on pins and needles, right? So, okay. I can imagine the applications all over the place, but why don't I let you ask? So where does your work come in handy? Wow. Um, well, you know, you asked about my personal relationships and this certainly, I would say the, the, Easiest place to apply it is usually in like customer service situations. They're tense, tense, or you know these kinds of like interactions with strangers who are annoying me or not doing what I want them to be doing, um, and just kind of like dropping it and realizing that that person is that person is the center of their story, which may have which definitely has all kinds of elements I, I know nothing about. And I'm just the central figure in my story, which has all these elements that they know nothing about. And if I can just, you know, inflate that bubble right here, it's probably okay. It's probably not a big deal. And that helps a lot. That helps a ton. I also do, I mean, this is maybe, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's going to be too personal or not, but in my, in my, um, in my love relationship, I also have um, we actually have a, we make a weekly dedicated time to spend an hour with each other intentionally in that space. And, and we choose to have our difficult conversations then only when we have created the place of unconditional welcome. And when we feel that kind of safety to, to say, to be honest with our, with kindness and to be in that place of, uh, of mutual welcome. And it's, um, it's super transformative for that. You know, I haven't, I haven't found anything more powerful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and I'm imagining, so back into the customer care um, paradigm for a second, how much uh, 
health and wellness comes from deploying this kind of strategy or this tactic or whatever you want to use as a word, you know, if let's say I'm a customer care person and you call me and you're like super annoyed, right? You have nothing against me. I just represent the company that's annoying you for whatever reason, you want a solution to your problem. You want some remedy and I can't give that to you because of whatever the chain of command or there's just limits on what I'm able to do in my role. And you're like angry at me now. All of a sudden, I think when you, you know, de- deploying what you've just described, you don't take it personally anymore and you're able to respond to a person just acknowledging, empathizing with a sense of frustration that that probably has a, like a, a, a very great health and wellness benefit to the employee, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, I have noticed that a lot of people think about empathy in terms of me trying to understand you, but another empathy practice is helping you understand me. And so um, in a customer service situation, if, if I'm responding to someone who's really, really, really angry, they may not even know how they seem to me or how they sound to me. And so part of practicing empathy is reflecting back to them. Hey, it sounds like you're really angry. That's a way of saying like, this is what I'm receiving from you. That reflecting back what my experience is right now with you is a way of practicing empathy. And that's kind of, and also not absorbing it, but just reflecting it back. Like, Hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. And that sharing your own experience is a way of showing someone else empathy, practicing empathy with someone else. And I imagine in sort of the broader society, how helpful this could be with people who have really different opinions, different political yeah. and ideological standpoints, how effective this could be. So you've developed training, right? Uh, training curriculum for your company. Um, can you tell us what's involved and what it's based on? Yeah, well, there are a couple of different tracks. So um, so we do also offer ethnographic research as a service for brands who want to understand their customers better. And we teach ethnography to strategists and researchers who want to do this style of research. Um, that is, uh, you know, a part of it. For empathy training, there are basically kind of two ways to go about it. One is empathy for your customers. The other is empathy for your colleagues. So one of them is sort of a... Um, um, I don't super love the term, but like empathy at scale. Like, how do I understand this group of people? How do I understand this community or this culture of people that I want to reach or communicate with? And those um, those skills are foundationally the same as the one-on-one, but they uh, in practice look different and they use different tools. So, and then the empathy between colleagues, um, that really looks like, I mean, we go down to the basics of how do you listen How do you ask questions? How do you adapt your communication style to the communication style of the person that you're speaking to? How do you even receive, like, I I, 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 you gave me some eyebrows, so I'll explain. (laughs) There's a, you know, when I was conducting ethnographic interviews, I noticed that um, a, a lot of times I would get hung up because maybe I'm, I'm talking to someone who, um, I ask them one question and they're going to give me 50,000 words and it's more than I can handle. And it's also like, um, it's maybe off topic and it's, and I'm, and I'm having, and we only have so much time. And, you know, there's this kind of thing, or I'm talking to someone who's giving me monosyllables and I need more and I, I'm not getting anything. And so it's like, and those are two, you know, kind of basic examples, but there are more variables than that. And I kind of identified five different qualities of communication that have 
different polls, you know, where, you know, being verbose or not is one of them. And they're not good or bad. They're just things to notice about someone so that you can form your question and ask in a way that helps them answer. So I am not going to necessarily ask a super verbose person an extremely open-ended question. I'm going to ask them a more specific question. Whereas someone who is relatively nonverbal, I might ask them to choose an image that describes what they're experiencing. I might ask them something, I might ask in a completely different way to just help give them tools to express if they're not comfortable with words. So there, that's just one of the things. How do we adapt to one another and understand that, um, you know, neurodiversity is real and we are, we are not made of the same stuff and we do not do things the same way. And so even the way that we ask questions can be adapted and can be empathetic. So listening, asking questions, um, and, and the biggest piece, which is a part of all of it, is something that I call self-witnessing. Self-witnessing is just, it's doing this on, on me so that I know what's my communication style? How do I seem to other people? Where are my blind spots? What are the things about myself that, that I'm, that I try to hide? And what are the things that I try to, you know, show and why, you know, and if I know more about that, then I'm going to know more about how I'm, how others are receiving me and how I'm receiving others. One of my favorite cartoons, and this was the ethnographer that trained me, um, he showed me this cartoon, this incredible conversation in the jungle between a giraffe and a lion. And, and the giraffe says, uh, you know, have you seen this human family down by the river? Um, they're, they just moved in. They're amazing. And they, they make the sound like, <gasps> and the lion goes, I don't know, but I've been seeing this family, but they make this sound, <gasps> <laughs> and it's because the family is responding to them differently. And we are all like that with each other. You know, I had a, um, there was someone doing my hair. Uh, I might cry a little bit. <laughs> there was someone doing my hair on Friday night for this event that I was a part of. And she asked me what I did. And I told her that I was an ethnographer and she, you know, we talked about it. And she said, um, she was a black woman. And she said, I, I think I'd be really good at that. And I almost tried to be a detective, but I realized I could never be a detective because I don't fit in anywhere. And it broke my heart because I said, she's like, I stand out too much. And I was like, not everywhere, you know, certainly not. And I, there are places that I stand out quite a bit too. There are places where I wouldn't be able to be inconspicuous that she would be. And I, it broke my heart that she felt like she didn't fit in anywhere. And I, it reminded me of so many times in my research practice where I've been, you know, tasked with understanding a group of people who I don't fit in with at all. And, and I've had to overcome that boundary. And sometimes I haven't overcome it. Because everyone's responding to me and the way that I look, I, this is the body that I have, you know, this is, and this is the personality that I have. And like, I can try to be neutral, but I'm not no one. And we also need her. I need her in the field as well. I need her to connect with people as well. And it was just a, a, a powerful moment of realizing how important self-witnessing is, how important it is to understand that I'm, I'm bringing a whole person into an environment that of course changes that environment. Today's episode was brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals, 
and companies. Um, I wanted to ask a question about, you know, for, for those who, okay, so I'll just use myself. Explain to me how doing ethnography with a group of people would actually help a company understand their customer base better. Like, I don't know if you can go to an example without outing the company or whatnot, but like, just out of curiosity, uh, I understand in theory, but what does that really look like? Like, what kind of practical information can you bring back to a company to help them understand their customer better so that they could meet their needs better? Yeah, it's... um... I'll tell you that the really special thing about ethnography is as opposed to other kinds of customer research. And let me just use like customer satisfaction interviews as, as an example, Um, customer satisfaction interviews where you have written a set of questions that have probably been approved by multiple departments and, um, and they might even be, and are usually are multiple choice. So you've actually already written the answers as well. <laughs> you know, you don't know how they're going to respond, but you're not, you may find some insights that you didn't expect, but you're not really going to get information that you didn't expect because mm-hmm. you already wrote it. Mm-hmm. Ethnography, because of the open-ended nature, because of the immersive nature, because of the ethnography um, multiplies variables rather than um, reducing them. And so, for example, and, and, and let me just finish that thought that you're always going to find more than you were looking for. And the hard part is, is deciding what, which of those things are actionable and are relevant are, are things that you should pay attention to and dig into more, but you're always going to find things that you didn't know that you didn't know. And that's why I love ethnography because those insights, you know, um, are the ones that really change things. You know, I had, I think I can tell you, I was, I was doing a, a project recently for a financial services company that wanted to create, um, wanted to help develop financial services specifically for folks who were unbanked. And it was through a, um, a residential, um, it was through their landlords. They wanted to do it through the building of a kind of low income building. And we found a lot of extraordinary things. But one of the things that we found, just to give you the most basic example, was that when we were asking people what they really needed in their lives, um, they needed, uh, many of them needed domestic violence services. Many of them needed a security guard. Um, And I'm asking them about, do you want coaching on investing and saving? And they're like, not even close to that, you know? And so... And, and what's really lovely about this client that I was working with is that they were absolutely willing to hear that and were ready to rethink the suite of services they were offering and, and reimagine, you know, what other ways can we support these people and really help them because their hearts were in the right place. They wanted to do the right thing. Um, but what they wanted to offer wasn't the immediate need, you know, of that group. And so, and that happens a lot. That happens all the time in, in less dramatic and more dramatic situations that ethnography tells you what you don't know that you didn't know, you know, so that's super excellent. Amazing uh, example that really brings that to life. Thank you so much. Um, What do you think might be the most misunderstood uh, aspect of empathy um, in your work? Yeah. In work. Yeah. I think that, um, That people, I th- I think empathy has a bad reputation for being 
soft, for being sentimental, for being um, uh, like, there's this kind of like concern eyebrows, you know, <laughs> like the kind of like, oh, I feel for you. And it's always connected to, it's always connected to someone who's in pain. And I, you know, like, as we were talking about like that kind of using it synonymous with compassion, I feel like, you know, uh, psychopaths are actually very good at empathy. <laughs> You know, understanding they they are good at tapping in to what a person fears, what a person needs, what a person is, what what's going to make that person trust them. Um, empath the skills of empathy can be used for good or evil, but they're skills. And so I think that you know that for me is the most misunderstood thing that that empathy is always tender and it's always compassionate and it's always for the good of the other person. Not always. It's not always. It's a skill set which expands your perspective and what you do with that perspective is, you know, between you and you. Perfect. And what do you think as a kind of like taking it to the other side, um, what is the most astounding thing you feel like you've learned or astonishing thing you've learned through your research about people? Yeah. I, um, the practice of unconditional welcome is the absolute biggest thing that I have discovered. The most powerful thing that I have discovered about unconditional welcome is that it is both incredibly easy and accessible. And once the space is open, it is universally transformative. It's, it's like, um, it feels like being immediately Oh gosh, everything I'm trying to say sounds really new agey, but, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's pure love. It's pure love. And it's the good kind of love, not affection, not admiration, not adoration. It's this universal limitless love and it's available. It's right there. It's like, it's right there. And it's and when you tap into it, when I tapped into it and felt how it changed me and it changed this person and it changed where we will, where we will, where we were able to meet one another. Um, yeah, it was, it was, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let go of it. That's the, it's the core of the practice for me. Unconditional welcome. I mean, I think whether you're a fan of Oprah or not, and I happen to be in the category of fan. Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, she is a great interviewer. I mean, there are pe reason why people go, you know, bear their souls to Oprah. And she made a very in, intentional decision somewhere along the lines in her career that she didn't want to abuse of that trust by, you know, just kind of spreading people's lives on the screen, but she wanted to actually leverage that for positive change in the world and for people to live better lives. But so often I remember her saying that, like reflecting on her career as an interviewer, she said that a fundamental human need that we have is to feel heard and seen. And I think that's what you're describing when you're talking about this love is just to like the value, the person for the inherent value they have. Yeah. Yeah. It's a love is what happens when we stop trying to figure out who deserves it. Oh, yeah. oh. oh. Oh, love that one. Oh, can you say that again? <laughs> yeah, I'm, 
I'm I'm stealing from my own talk from the other. <laughs> uh, love is, love is what happens when we stop trying to figure out who deserves it. When we welcome absolutely anyone exactly as they are in that moment, no questions asked. That's a good one. By the time yeah. this video goes out, maybe your TEDx talk will be added to the. Mm-hmm. Discussion. If not, I'll go back retroactively and add it so people can watch it. Um, Karen, I have a last question for you. Um, I love asking this of my guests because uh, it's always juicy and unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, I'll be the ethnographer. Um, can you think of a time in your life when you were on the receiving end of empathy and what that meant for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I've had, I've been very, very lucky to be on the receiving end of quite a lot in my life. And I will tell you that all of them have, I could tell you about any of them and they would be big, but my very favorite one, um, my very favorite one a couple of years ago. So one part of my story is that I have, um, I have, I have complex post-traumatic stress, which has come with a lot of very uh, interesting side effects. And, and, and I would say that I qualify as being neurodiverse in some ways. And, uh, and so I have carried this in my professional life. I have carried this fear that um, if I, that they're, that they're going to find out that I'm crazy. (laughs) They're going to find out that I'm messed up. They're going to find out that I don't, I can't do things that other people can do or that, you know, it's like this, it's, it's, you know, an imposter syndrome thing, but it's also just like, I felt like I was carrying this secret that um, if, if anybody knew how much I was struggling, then they would never let me do the things that they're letting me do. And they'd never let me talk to the people they're letting me talk to. Mm -hmm. And so I was like holding this. And uh, about three years ago, um, I had a beautiful experience actually went to, um, to design up in Bangalore, India, which is where I met our common friend Nihal. And, um, you know, and, and the, the flight back, which was of course, you know, long and arduous. I had a, um, I had a terrible jet lag and, um, all kinds of different things were going on. And I was, I went into work the next morning having not slept And then a couple of other, a couple of other triggers happened and I made a bunch of mistakes in a couple of 48 hours. Um, Some of them more embarrassing than others, but, but there were, you know, just a series of mistakes that, and, and emotional responses to things um, that, that actually triggered my then manager um, whom I love and respect and who is just one of the most amazing professionals I have ever worked with, um, it triggered her to alert HR that she had concerns about my mental health, which was absolutely horrifying. And um, and the CEO of that company, Michael Ventura, called me on the phone to tell me what had happened. And, um, and he said to me, uh, I want you to know that there's nothing wrong with you and that I let them know there's nothing wrong with you. And he's like, I see what has happened and I know what's going on and I know that you're okay and that you are tired (laughs) and that you need to, you need some sleep and that no one like he, and he just, he assured me that he knew that I was valuable and he knew that what I had to offer was intact and that I was intact 
and that these kind of weird things that happen um, were not at all impacting his his view of me. And he um, and he stood up for me uh, with my manager and with HR to say she's all right. And we actually made some changes to the way that I worked and even my work from home um, agreement and all kinds of things to make sure that I was able to take care of myself. And I'm telling you that um, that was one of the biggest and most beautiful and generous acts of empathy that in my most, when my biggest fear came true, that this person who I was so scared was going to find out that I was not okay, was able to see that I am okay. And that, um, and that meant everything to me. What a powerful story. (laughs) What a powerful story. And we all have the capacity to do that. And I think that's why I love asking this question so much, maybe because I am regularly reminded through each of the interviews, whether it's the small things on a little you know, daily basis or a big act of kind of like having someone's back and recognizing someone's value and just, you know, steadfastly yeah. uh, honoring that, mm-hmm. um, that we all have access to to being empathic in the world and, and that it does make the difference to how people navigate the world. And if we all did a little bit more of that, what would happen out of the aggregate level? Indeed. <laughs> well, perfect way to end this conversation. Thank you so, so, so much, Karen. Really appreciate the time. Again, we'll have some more information about your work in the description below. Feel free to add comments uh, to all the listeners. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for having me. You. Yeah, great to meet you again. Well, I guess see you again. Yeah, we've had one conversation before. See you next week at Purposeful Empathy. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free of your thinking clutter, make that important decision, and liberate you from whatever is holding you back? At Grand Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice anytime from anywhere. Visit grandhuroninternational.ca and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.